0: asin Attorney Partnership webinar series: Understanding Special Purpose Acquisition Companies: A Special Purpose Acquisition Company Opportunities for Turkish Businesses. Moderator:
1: Musin Keskin, Baker McKenzie speakers: Adam Farlow, Rebecca Cowper Zimmerman. Dear guests, welcome and good afternoon. As uh, some of you might already know, my name is Musin Keskin, and I'm heading the Capital Markets practice for the Turkish capital markets practice for Baker McKenzie for several years. Now that the Turkish lockdown uh, is mostly over, thought might make sense to have a fun webinar with you so that we enjoy our free time. Uh, Joking aside, uh, we have the pleasure of hosting you uh, again for another session of the SNM Baker McKenzie webinar series that started last year during the, during the uh, hottest days of uh, pandemic so that we keep in touch. Uh, Today's topic is SPACs, one of the hottest topics of Wall Street trends, actually. Uh, We have been experiencing a very new and challenging era since March 2020, and this new era, the the pandemic, has established its uh, own trends uh, in every area. And the capital markets uh, naturally have taken their their share, too. Uh, I guess uh, you will all agree uh, that 2020 and 2021 were the years of SPACs in global uh, capital markets. They have become a very preferred way for many experienced management teams and sponsors to take private companies public. These uh, so-called blank check uh, shell companies have no operations or business plan other than to acquire a private company using the money raised through an IPO from investors, retail, uh, institutional, et cetera, and uh, enabling the private company to to go public quickly and in a, a less cumbersome process. Thanks to uh, their increasing popularity, we, we have familiarized uh, ourselves with the SPACs very recently in Turkey as well. Actually, this is very interesting because we already had the SPAC-like investment vehicle, which is called Birleşme Ortaklık, and for the sake of my partner's uh, merger SPV, as we can call it uh, in, in Turkish, uh, in our capital markets, uh, for almost a decade. So it's not a new concept to us either. Birleşme ama Ortaklık is an SPV to go public with a predetermined investment strategy to invest in non-public companies and merge with them following the acquisition. So basically, almost identical to to what SPAC means in the global literature. While we have this concept for many years, no one has considered investing in a SPAC in Turkey or making an investment through a public in a public company through a SPAC in Turkey until very recently. Thanks to the um, Successful global uh, SPAC IPOs. This situation seems to be changing. We are uh, definitely noticing huge difference in terms of the questions that we generally receive from our clients uh, as to how uh, they can take uh, their companies public in Turkey, elsewhere, including England, including uh, Netherlands through London Stock Exchange or Amsterdam Euronext, etc. And uh, these new questions uh, relate to the, the clients' ideas about SPAC. Uh, their uh, willingness to explore about SPACs. So we thought this might be a right time to have a chat with you, get together with you to answer the questions we normally receive from the clients about SPACs. Uh, And as you know, uh, our uh, invitation also included a questionnaire to collect any extra additional question you might have in your minds. And uh, thanks to those who provided their questions, we have come up with a, a large list of uh, points to, to consider to discuss about uh, SPACs, uh, which we'll be going through thanks to Rebecca and uh, Adam's contribution today. Uh, my panelists, uh, just to introduce them, uh, I have today uh, my corporate finance partner from our London office, Adam Farlow, uh, and uh, Rebecca Kuypers-Zimmerman of our Amsterdam office, the head, uh, head of uh, our Dutch capital markets practice we will try to do our best to shed some light on what SPACs are, their advantages and disadvantages compared to conventional uh, capital markets investments and uh, where the right address might be uh, to list the SPAC for a a Turkish sponsor. So uh, let's start with the most uh, essential question. And uh, for that one, I'm turning to Rebecca. Uh, I guess uh, every jurisdiction has its own twist to, to the definition of SPAC. Uh, but do you think we can say there is a global, a universal uh, answer to what SPAC is?
0: Yes. So first of all, hello, good afternoon, everyone. I cannot see you, but um, I'm delighted to be here present and, um, and explaining uh, some of the developments on um, SPACs um, we have seen throughout Europe together with uh, Mushin and Adam today. Um, so, yeah, what is a SPOC? It's very good to know that you're already familiar with the SPOC, the concept of a SPOC. Uh, and let's say the SPOC is a special purpose acquisition company in, in Turkey as well. Overall, we can say that there are some general characteristics on what a SPOC is. And as Mushin mentioned, and as Adam will dive into further a bit later is the SPOCs have made a comeback, so to say. So it isn't a new item um, on the market but a sort of revival of um, how um, investors would tend to invest their monies um, in the market. So I think as Mushin also indicated, what, what a SPAC is, is SPAC is an empty company. In the US, they tend to refer to it sometimes as blank check companies, um, but with, with no commercial or um, business operations as an incorporation. So their sole purpose is indeed to raise capital through an initial public offering, an IPO. And what this SPOC will be offering to prospective investors is units, so-called units. And what do we mean with units? A unit is a, a package, so to say, which consists of an ordinary class A share, for example. And as an additional incentive to um, invest in this SPOC, the SPOC will be offering a warrant, and usually it's a fraction of a warrant. So what you will have is you'll have a ordinary share that you will be uh, that will be part of the unit in addition to a one third of a right to acquire a warrant. A whole what is a warrant? Um, a whole warrant entitles a shareholder to acquire one ordinary share after a certain period and for a certain exercise price. The unit, so the ordinary share with the one-third right to acquire a whole warrant will be offered for a certain amount, a unit price, which we usually see in a European market and also in the US markets to be around Euro one, 10 euros. Ultimately, the warrant can be exercised after a certain period, which will be after the so-called business combination, which we'll dive into later on as well, will be for an amount of approximately €11.50. Following the IPO, so the initial public offering, the units will become separated. They will separate. So what you'll have at listing is you'll have the ordinary shares listed and you'll have the warrants listed separately with a separate ISIN code. And they will have their own... Share, share values as well, um, relating to either the ordinary shares and the warrants. So with the money raised from this initial public offering, that sum, so, so to say, the proceeds will be placed on a trust account. The reason why this is placed on a trust account and not on the bank account of this pocket itself is for investor protective purposes. Because what will be done with these proceeds with those proceeds as Mushin also uh, briefly referred to is, is that the sole purpose of the SPOC is ultimately to find a business target to acquire during a certain period. And we call this acquisition of this target, um, you will see it in prospectuses as the business combination, which we'll also dive into further detail how that works. But the business combination um, is the essence of the entire SPOC. So the SPOC will have usually a term of approximately two years, usually what we'll see in Europe, so 24 months, with a possibility to extend this period with a half a year. In this period, it is the task of the board to look and seek for a business target and uh, enter into an agreement with this target. Once agreement has been reached and there is a possibility to close this transaction, a shareholders meeting will need to be convened. In this shareholders meeting, the shareholders will be provided the opportunity to vote on the so-called business combination. And the shareholder approval, so will depend primarily on the jurisdiction, the governing law, governing what will be required to approve a transaction, either a merger or a direct acquisition or an investment. But for example, if you look at in the Netherlands, usually a, a business combination will require a simple majority vote. So that's what you'll see that people tend to more. But you can obviously deviate to include a quorum or increase the threshold if you would like to. During in preparation of the EGM, it is very necessary as well and helpful. And this is also a request of a lot of uh, regulators to provide the investors with information on the target business. This information will be included in a so-called shareholders circular in which the SPOC will need to provide the investors with all the information it needs to understand the target business and to be able to make a well-informed decision. Um, And as we are looking at this um, table, we'll see this under item D, that's the shareholders meeting in which the shareholders will need to resolve on whether or not the SPOC can go and continue with the business combination. If it would result ultimately in the fact that shareholders would vote against the proposed business combination, then there is no target. So, And depending on the time that's left on the clock, so you have the 24-month period time, the, the SPOC can go back and look for another target and uh, propose a new target to, again, go at T, to be voted upon at the shareholders meeting. Often, and if it's not possible, then ultimately, the purpose of the SPOC cannot be completed and the SPOC will need to be dissolved. It will need to be dissolved and the shareholders will get their pro rata amounts that they had in the funds, in the trust account back as part of the liquidation. One additional item which we need to, uh, which is also a very key characteristic of the SPOC and which gives the investors the confidence to invest in this this SPOC is that, Shareholders have the option, there are two options on this. Shareholders have first the option to, um, if they have voted against the business combination, to ask the company to repurchase their shares back. Because for example, if they do not, cannot find them in the proposed target, they can ask the company to acquire their, to repurchase their shares and they will get their money back. There's also an option which is even more investor friendly in which the um, investors, shareholders, can get ha, can ask the company to repurchase their shares, even if they have voted in a favor. So that in any case, they can request for the repurchase of their shares. So that's also a key characteristic of a SPOC. So yeah, this is in short, in a nutshell, how a SPOC works. And if you see at the lifecycle, indeed you start at the IPO, and um, we'll talk about listing venues later, in this example, we have set out Euronext Amsterdam as a listing venue because we see a lot of spocs um, there currently. Afterwards, the B under B, you will going yeah, the, the the focus, and that's almost the sole focus of the spoc is to look for a target and, um, and in line with all the uh, um, key characteristics that they are looking for, and see signing the transaction and afterwards going for a shareholders meeting to approve it. So um, this is in a nutshell how the SPAC works.
1: Well, thanks Rebecca. That's been a very detailed explanation of what SPAC is. And I think the concept is not much different in any jurisdiction in the world, including Turkey. Uh, More or less, uh, you establish an empty company, you go out to the market, you you raise funds. And then with those funds, uh, you basically realize what you promised your uh, investors, uh, i.e. Uh, you invest in the company, the target that uh, you identified when raising money uh, from all those uh, investors in a nutshell. Well, turning to Adam, uh, Adam, actually you, you've been practicing capital markets for quite some time and uh, in many markets, including developed markets or emerging markets like Turkey, uh, you have seen a lot. And when I did my research about SPACs, it looks like this concept was first introduced in the 90s. So, uh, why it is becoming so popular? Uh, what are the reasons you think, and what uh, have been the trends that you are seeing in the last two years uh, with regard to this raising rising popularity of the of the SPACs?
2: Hi, Muzin, Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Uh, that's exactly right, Muzin. You know, the early days of the SPACs were in the uh, uh, in the 1990s in the United States. The first properly recognizable SPAC you would See as the, in effect the current model was was in 2003, so you know, 18 years or so ago. Uh, the first European spec was was 2005, so uh, still quite a while ago here uh, in this part of the world. Uh, that was a that was a Dutch spec. I was doing um, UK specs at the at around the same time, uh, based here in London, and they do go in and out of. Fashion over the years. Currently, they are clearly in fashion. You know, to put it in in, in the context, more than half of the IPOs in the United States last year uh, were were SPAC deals. Um, globally, uh, there were 250 uh, SPAC IPOs last year. There have already been 300 and, 20 SPAC IPOs this year. So, very significant increase just in the last last four or five months, averaging a little over $300 million a piece and raising last year $83 billion worth of equity. This year, already uh, a little over $100 million uh, of equity and creating a lot of dry powder. We'll talk more about that dry powder in. in just a minute. And I guess the question is why? Uh, I'd, I'd say probably three factors driving driving the, the, the SPAC boom now, none of which actually have anything to do with, with COVID as far as I can tell. Uh, the first is really supply and demand. Over the years, the numbers of public companies uh, have gone down dramatically over the last over the last decades, 20, 30 years, uh, the number of public companies in the United States, just to pick an example, is half of uh, of what it had been. But the amount of money that is flowing into the public markets has been increasing. Uh, so, you know, supply demand imbalance. And you know, at the same time, the stock exchanges that, that make their money, uh, bringing on new companies to their markets, uh, they've been pushing SPACs uh, onto the market as well. Um, I think the second driver is the private equity market. There's been a huge increase in the amount of capital uh, invested in private equity, uh, but the number of exits uh, has seen a decline. Uh, So PE-backed portfolios are looking for opportunities to exit and make return. So you know, the PE model is supportive of, of SPACs. And then finally, you know, at a very base level, uh, is partly it's fashion. Uh, they've received a ton of attention recently. Uh, consequently, other people have jumped on the bandwagon, as it were. Uh, and consequently, we've seen these, um, these record years. So supply and demand, uh, a supportive PE model, uh, and fashion. I think those are probably the three key drivers. I think anybody could argue different aspects of that, but I think broadly speaking, that's what I'd say.
1: That's, that's very interesting uh, to be fair actually. Uh, what have been the trends uh, that you are facing uh, with regard to the specs in the last few years and especially uh, trends about the listing venue, uh, which jurisdictions are the most popular ones?
2: Yeah, so let's, let's take that, one, that that second one first, second half of that first. Um, 2020, very much the year of SPACs in the United States. In Europe, you know, b- more broadly around EMEA, which broadly speaking, uh, had been Amsterdam and London. Um, you know, there's been just a few every year, uh, pretty slow market for the last 10 or 15 years, really. But what so often happens, you know, what happens in the United States, And and particularly in the US capital markets, tends to spread to EMEA. And consequently, we're seeing a significant rise in listings outside the United States, um, particularly in EMEA, uh, with listings to date in uh, all of London, uh, Amsterdam, Paris, uh, Frankfurt. Uh, Last week, I was at the uh, uh, closing ceremony for uh, a SPAC that we listed in Sweden in the first sort of Proper American model uh, SPAC to list in Sweden. We've got uh, deals uh, going in other uh, continental jurisdictions as well, including uh, including Switzerland. Uh, In in Asia Pacific, Hong Kong and Singapore have been looking very closely. Malaysia and South Korea uh, have had SPAC regimes for about 10 years. None of them have taken off in any meaningful way. So fact sponsors that are looking for APAC targets, for instance, are still listing in the United States uh, rather than uh, listing an APAC. But maybe to draw that to a, a more pertinent point, the US SPACs are looking to de-SPAC with targets all across the world. We did the, the first de-SPAC in India, but you, uh, and that was a US uh, SPAC acquiring an Indian target. U.S. SPACs are acquiring EMEA targets regularly. They're acquiring APAC targets regularly. There are some places where it's just difficult to list. Um, One of those is here where I'm based. We've been doing it for a number of years, but it's not a great place to do it, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, London uh, currently, under the current rules, and they are being proposed to change, has had a reasonably small number of SPACs because of some technical issues with the way our reverse tender offer rules uh, work. And so most of our SPACs uh, across the market more broadly uh, and us in particular as a firm, uh, have been in in Amsterdam. And then across industries, uh, pretty widespread. TMT uh, is is a big sector, um, but we've seen Deals that have no sector specificity at all. We've seen some that are very specific to uh, sustainability or ESG factors. Um, so it does it does vary, but TMT seems to be probably the most favored sector. Uh, but I think it'd be hard to find a sector that hasn't had a SPAC launched recently that is focused on that on that sector.
1: Well, thank you, them I think. What you said about the Asia Pacific uh, specs uh, is also valid for Turkish specs as well. We haven't seen any uh, spec uh, type IPO in the Turkish market, although we have the regime for almost a decade. I guess Turkish sponsors considering a spec start by uh, doing the transactions uh, on a different market, uh, such as Euronex Amsterdam or London Stock Exchange. But as you say, doing it on the London Stock Exchange would be harder than doing it on the Euronex uh, Amsterdam. And uh, speaking of Amsterdam, then uh, obviously I'm turning to Rebecca. Uh, well, from a Turkish legal perspective, there is uh, a restriction in terms of the sponsors of a, uh, and, and investors of a SPAC, actually. Uh, the Turkish law requires that uh, the founders should have at least 10% stake in the uh, SPAC company, plus 80% of the capital, at least 80% of the capital should be allocated to the institutional investors which means retail investors can take up to 10% of the SPAC IPO, which doesn't really work in the current circumstances in the Turkish market because there is a very active capital markets these days in Turkey, many IPOs, many local IPOs. But when you look at the investors, they are mostly local retail investors. So the current investor profile in Turkey doesn't really pave the way for SPAC IPO. So most probably Turkish sponsors will need to go to another market to list their spec entities. How do you see it from the Euronext Amsterdam perspective? How do you see the uh, sponsor profile? How do you see the uh, investor profile? Uh, who are sponsoring these, these deals and what is the main benefit for them? How, how are they compensated?
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting question that indeed in Turkey, they have uh, regulated the, um, the number of the amount of shares to be held by the sponsors. So, Euronext, if you look at the Euronext Amsterdam listing rules itself, they don't have any restrictions on how many shares the promoters or sponsors uh, should hold. So we would follow the, the European Prospectus regulation, and you can make offers to either institutional investors, qualified investors, we would mm-hmm. say, or add to the retail, to the, to the public, um, which would have, have some uh, nuances in the approval process of the prospectus. But both options are are available. If you look at perhaps a question back on who is sponsoring uh, Spox nowadays, you'll see that those are usually uh, very well uh, experienced investors, um, either uh, people that have formed another company uh, with experience from previous investment banks or have, as Adam mentioned, have a lot of experience in a certain industry and are are confident that with the knowledge that they have, they could search for a target business, a business combination, which would ultimately make it a profitable for prospective investors to, to make their investment in the um, in the SPOC. Because ultimately what's important to note is that as the SPOC has no business, what will you be investing on? You'll be investing on the experience, knowledge, and reputation of the of the promoters or sponsors, um, if you will. So this is an important element, and this is what you will see as well when describing the perspective that you will pay a lot of attention in addition to what Adam just mentioned into what will the proposed business be? What will be your focus of the spot? Will it be agnostic? So will there be no focus and we will search um, in different industry types or will there be a certain focus? And why are we as sponsor or sponsors the perfect, persons or group for the job. Those type of things are really, really important as, um, as part of the SPOC. So that's the first question. And then the second question, which is also very important one, is why will sponsors, well, what's the benefit of sponsors mm-hmm. to, to set up this process and, and, and set up a SPOC? I think, first of all, it's important for prospective investors to, to understand that the sponsors also have skin in the game by meaning meaning by that is that what they will need to do to be able to list a stock they will need to pay for any and all costs eh, leading up to the IPO which are the offering expenses furthermore they will need to make some funds available as well for any other running costs which will ensue following the IPO so this is a and this is an investment that they will make And if ultimately it results that there will be no business combination and the company will need to be liquidated, they will lose their money. So that's what they usually call, so the amount that the promoter will invest in a SPOC is usually called an at-risk capital. This is what they put in, and this is what they would like to demonstrate to the public by saying, we are also committed to make this successful. In return for this at-capital risk, they will also receive some ties to the company itself so they will not only be providing funds with nothing for in return so what they will what you will see and what's usually referred to as they will have they will also receive promoter shares or sponsor shares um, for which they will pay a minimal nominal value um, the minimal possible on the relevant uh, governing law which for example could be one euro cent so they will receive promoter shares and promoter shares are a different class compared to the shares listed on the stock exchange. For example, the class B ordinary shares. And these promoter shares will be converted into class A ordinary shares once a business combination has been completed. So this is their, their incentive to make a, the business combination successful. The promoter shares itself are not listed. So they will have, they are not listed and the, the upswing of having and having those promoter shares will be due to the fact that they have uh, accomplished a successful business combination. In addition to the promoter shares, the, the, the sponsors will also receive promoter warrants. And those promoter warrants, they will pay a minimal value for these as well. And those promoter warrants will have the similar characteristics as the public warrants. And they can also be exercised during the similar period and for a similar exercise price. And as I just mentioned um, previously, a public warrant, and that's the same as a promoter warrant, will give the promoter the right to receive an ordinary A-share um, uh, following a successful business combination during a certain period of time. So these, these, these elements, so the promoter shares and the promoter warrants are uh, the incentive for promoters yeah, and a link to the ad capital risk. What you usually see that there is, even though there is no regulation to hold a specific amount of number of shares in the SPAC, the sponsors will usually hold between 10 to 20% of the shares of the SPAC. So there is a a range within which they will, uh, they will hold their shares.
1: Are these shares like golden shares that would entitle them to have management control of the SPAC and plus the merged entity after the merger?
0: Good question. Um, no, so the shares are usually ordinary shares, and there, there are no entitlements to to golden shares, etc. And I think this is a difficult, a very sensitive item as well for for the regulators because what the regulators do not want is that this SPOC will be qualified as an alternative investment fund, which would be uh, which would bring this SPOC into difficult and additional regulations and perhaps um, need of certain permits. So when structuring the SPOC, we will also make sure that we are not indicating that they will be holding or be, uh, be part of the management yeah, in, in perpetuity or um, or the like. Um, but you'll see that certain um, sponsors are part of, form part of the board, uh, which is possible. Um, but those links are not tied to the shares they hold.
1: I see. And then how about uh, their compensation as directors, managers, uh, slash executives of the SPAC, do they get anything like a, a management fee in case of a pre management activity or uh, they only get uh, the shares just you just explained?
0: Yeah, so for the sponsors that are part of the management board, usually that's because it's their SPAC, so they will not ask for additional an additional remuneration. Um, but if there would be other, uh, because, I think one of the tasks, uh, which is important, is uh, as I said, the sponsor are face of the of the spot, but the management board itself as well. Um, and we'll touch upon that briefly as well um, in another question. But there could be um, other directors which do not form part of the sponsor team, and they would need to be remunerated because they're professional directors. So you'll you'll have the option, and what you see in the US usually is that they can all, they all also receive promoter shares as part of their contribution because that is more familiar with investors and it avoids more money being taken out of the escrow but focused on the business acquisition and um, the promoters uh, the directors also having a part of uh, promoter shares but we also see that certain directors receive a cash remuneration uh, for their services
1: i think that would be the uh, main difference of the turkish market if a SPAC- practice ever uh, develops here because most probably the sponsors that are taking part uh, in the management of the SPAC and the the merged entity eventually will be asking for remuneration like salaries or management fees, etc. And I think that's the negative thing about the Turkish SPAC legislation because these are not set out in the legislation, uh, which means uh, you can do it to the extent you disclose this in the uh, offering documents. Uh, but the regulator might not uh, like the idea because at the end, yeah. this might be, you know, not in line with the uh, spirit of the spec. So it's, we will see how the practice will develop here.
2: It's a, it's a complicated area and it, it varies deal by deal, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Depends on where you've lived. Even outside the Turkish context, that it varies on where you list. It varies on the jurisdiction of the listing vehicle. You've got independence issues, and the one thing we haven't touched on is you've got tax issues. Uh, that you know, it's a it's a super I don't want to say complicated, maybe more complex answer to how to to structure these, and it it's done really deal by deal, um, primarily with a view to how the market can react to this particular set of uh, uh, compensation um, packages that are being offered up in the context of the deal. The reality is for for the for the people who are really running the transaction, putting it together, their upside is is the promote, is the is is seeing shares. their their shares and their warrants go rather than
1: I see. They they simply maximize the, the value of their capital, right. All right. Uh, well, uh, I said Adam's been practicing capital markets for uh, for quite some time. But Rebecca, you are also very uh, familiar with the specs because Euronex Amsterdam is a very popular uh, listing venue. So out of your uh, experience, can you please tell us about how cumbersome the process is, uh, what it is like, how long, how long it would normally take, etc.
0: Yeah, sure. I think uh, Adam touched upon a very good point. I think people tend to think or hope to think that SPAC is an empty shell company, so we can have something <laughs> uh, quick, pick something out of the shell and have it ready for filing <laughs> in a month or so. Well, I unfortunately, wish. Yes, unfortunately, that's not the case. Because indeed, while we have a lot of presidents available currently, it's still a tailor-made process. Uh, it still depends on, on, on uh, what promoters will be investing, how they will be investing. So you'll you'll be looking at a period between and that's perhaps a bit shorter than a, a full full IPO, but you'll be looking at a period between three to six months um, in, in in having and setting things up. Uh, to be honest, and that that's that's if everything goes according to plan and you have a uh, a cooperating uh, regulator that is willing to to help you in this process as well, because a lot of I think due to the fact that things are changing as as we go and and regulators are getting themselves more educated as well on on, on Spox, they will be asking further questions their view as to how things were changed as well sometimes slightly so you'll have to go back and forth but um you can say around a period of three to six months
1: that's not short that's not (laughs) that's not really short no you know that that that's better than, you know, the IPO process, which can take more than uh, six months in Turkey. Obviously, it should take uh, at most 135 days, but, you know, your deal gets delayed and it's generally longer, etc. So uh, aside from the length of the process, is it a cumbersome process?
0: Well, well, quite a bit. Sometimes I think the first part is the preparation part. And this ties into questions such as what is your strategy? Eh? Perhaps the equity story is less intense, the discussion as when, when going for a full-blown IPO, but still you need to have a thought of what do you want to accomplish? What is the sector that you want to focus? Do you want to focus on a sector? And um, and Adam touched upon a very good point, and that's the stack structuring. I think a lot of uh, people tend to forget how important it is to have the stack structure really good in place, not only for the pocket itself, but also for the promoter's so how will they be holding their shares and whether they're holding of the shares in a certain jurisdiction in a, for example, a Dutch PV would be beneficial for them, or whether it would have so much tax implications that perhaps the SPOC venue, the location of the governing law SPOC should be located elsewhere. So we usually recommend to really start with those key questions first. Have your structuring in place, then have a focus on indeed your sector focus and where to list um, as well as an important item. What are your investors? Where do you seek for investors and which venue would be more beneficial for you? So all those types of things um, is is the first process of really diving into it, seeing what the conflicts of interest are, um, checking the remuneration. So those are slightly different aspects than, than you will have to focus on more that in, in a normal IPO, but are really, really important. And also one of the important discussions is, as I briefly mentioned is that the regulators want to receive a detailed explanation of how or whether or not we qualify this PEC as an alternative investment fund. So we will need to make a great analysis on that as well. So that takes time. And after the preparation time you'll have, and that's more the part of the investment bankers they will go for the marketing, the pre-marketing, et cetera. And then you will be listing and you have the clearing and settlements, uh, et cetera. But the most parts uh, you will be focusing on, on preparation.
1: See, well, actually, this is a question uh, to both of you, uh, just to see how, well, just how you think the process would be like out of your personal experiences. Would it be easier to uh, have the listing when and the company to be acquired in the very same jurisdiction. Uh, I'm asking this because uh, the more I think about uh, SPACs from a Turkish law perspective, the more I get puzzled because at the end, uh, the ultimate idea is to merge the SPAC and the target uh, so that the private target becomes a a public company eventually. Uh, From a Turkish law perspective, it's not technically possible to merge a Turkish company with a non-resident company. So if a Turkish sponsor goes out to another market to do a SPAC IPO then obviously uh, they will not be looking to buy a Turkish company uh, if they want to merge the the, the SPAC entity and the uh, and the opco uh, because they will not be able to do it technically so uh, would it make any difference from this perspective to have both entities in the very same jurisdiction
2: because I think well it's uh, you know it, it raises a whole new Series question, was and so It's a it's a great question, um, and it, it 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 begins the process around what's a DSPAC, uh, which is a technical phrase that people made up for the acquisition uh, or business combination that goes with a uh, with the SPAC. So people usually refer to it now as a uh, uh, as a DSPAC. So I'm going to come back to your specific question, but I think it's worth laying the groundwork just just a little bit. So as Re- Rebecca has explained uh, so eloquently, uh, the process of listing a new money spec is broadly like any other IPO uh, with a prospectus uh, reviewed by the relevant regulator, uh, investor pre-sounding. But of course, you aren't selling a business. Uh, you're selling an investment thesis. You're, you're selling an idea, selling a group of founders rather than rather than a business. When it comes to the DSPAC, the DSPAC combines both the element of an M&A transaction, we'll talk about that in just a moment, um, with the you know, M&A, with the, with the SPAC that's acquiring the target um, business uh, or businesses, and uh, the business combination, you know, once the business combination has been signed, um, it's, it's in effect a re-IPO. So to, to take your, your question of jurisdiction. So in the, in the original days of these deals, they were basically all Delaware Co's, uh, Payment codes, or BVI Co's. Uh, those are almost exclusively the jurisdictions that are being IPO'd uh, in the United States for, uh, as SPACs. Um, on this side of, uh, of the Atlantic, um, there's a mix. Um, we're listing now uh, just in Amsterdam, we're listing Cayman Cos, Dutch Coes, Lux Cos. there's probably I, I probably m- missed one out, but there's a variety of, of, of vehicles that are being uh, listed on both sides of the uh, Atlantic vehicle uh, jurisdictions. There are pros and cons, uh, usually driven by tax, um, but not always, to uh, the different jurisdictions. But I've not seen a jurisdiction in which there wasn't a way to achieve what people wanted to achieve in the context of the uh, of the, of the D-SPAC process. Whether that usually it's through an acquisition of the target and a distribution of shares to the target's shareholders, rather than quote unquote a true merger in the uh, say in the Delaware uh, in the Delaware sense, for exactly the reason uh, you've laid out. It, it for these purposes, it's like any other M and A deal with an acquisition of either a holding company or uh, almost always a holding company. You could do it by assets, but typically be uh, a holding company. But oftentimes there's, there's a, uh, uh, a reorganization that's uh, done as part of that process to begin with. So I wouldn't sweat the question now of whether you know, it definitely has to be Cayman or has to be Lux or has to be uh, Dutch. At the time of the uh, of the IPO, I do think there are some advantages in thinking early about what if if you're a holder of Turkish assets, um, structuring your assets in a way that makes makes them easy to be uh, acquired, um, you know, particularly with a with a with, with a uh, with in that context, and maybe worth couple, picking up a couple of points. One is um, you know, SPACs are capitalized. They average about $300 million uh, or some that are 100, some are 200, some are 500. Um, the average in that sort of 300 million range, but it doesn't mean by any means that they are limited to a deal size that's 300 million for two reasons. One is there's there's very often a follow on financing, usually through a pipe, not always through a pipe, can be other structures, a forward purchase agreement, but there's otherwise usually additional cash that's going in. But also of course, these are public shares, these are public companies. And so there's the uh, almost likelihood that there will be not just cash that goes to the target company, but a combination of cash and shares in the, uh, in the SPAC vehicle uh, that go across, so that that piece is is important. Uh, roughly speaking, two thirds of deals uh, have additional capital that is injected as part of the uh, uh, of of the business combination. But the 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 other piece is not just the M and A; it's the re IPO, and that I think is where people sometimes lose track of of the idea which you know, a founder or, or, or a target company should not be thinking of this as sell-side and A. You know, I'll, I'll hand over my company to uh, a SPAC in exchange for cash or shares. It's, it's really a re-IPO of, that, uh, of, of the SPAC as a whole. Um, depending on where you do that deal, the mechanisms slightly vary. So if you're doing it in the United States with a US SPAC, and there's $180 billion worth of US SPAC dry powder out there. So it's not entirely unlikely that there could be a US SPAC that is looking for US listed SPAC that's look, looking for Turkish assets or Turkish headquartered assets. You know, that process is going to be, you know, in effect, a re-IPO in the United States with US. Style disclosure uh, with, in effect, either a new registration statement or a proxy that looks very much like a U.S. registration statement. Um, there's going to be the need for PCAOB financials and the like. So it's 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 a heavy process. The same will be true in 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 different ways for for Dutch codes. There'll be shareholder circulars that are going to get a ton of uh, uh, a ton of attention. So that, you know, in a nutshell, is the is the SPAC process, and I think it's it's worth uh, thinking hard about that. But I think it matters less where the SPAC is SPAC IPO vehicle happens to be organized at the time of uh, of uh, IPO. Sorry, that was a longer uh, it was a longer answer to your question than maybe uh, you're anticipating. But there's a lot that goes into that that analysis. Rebecca, I don't know if you've got anything that you would yeah, like to add on that.
0: I fully agree. I think you, if you have, and I think people want to, uh, promoters want to have a broadest possible sector focus or focus on, uh, looking for a, a business combination. And what you'll also see is, uh, and that's part of the preparations, are the risk factors. Uh, you will have a, you will have risk factors that there may be a, a business combination which uh, requires additional requirements, uh, permits, resolutions. So people are are informed of the options of what what can what can come into play um, with a potential uh, merger that's that's in this, in any case not really um, possible or more difficult. So um, no, it, it's customary and with respect to to uh, pipe transactions, fully agree as well. I think what you'll see as well in the proposed business section is that indeed there's a capital raise, for example, of 300 million, but they're, that they're looking for a company for 800 million. 800 million. So it's already evident that there will be a pipe required to make that acquisition possible. Thank
1: think for the uh, very detailed answers, uh, the, the answer is quite clear to me and I think uh, to the audience as well. That seems to be the uh, main difficulty of the Turkish uh, spec legislation because uh, our laws require, uh, well, uh, you use the term Business combination, uh, I have to say, merger, because our laws use the terminology of merger, which is you know uh, technically merging yeah. two entities, one surviving, the other not, uh, and uh, obviously this means that uh, if a sponsor consider uh, considers to do a SPAC deal in Turkey, then the target will need to be in Turkey as well. Otherwise, uh, the two companies will not be able to to merge, and uh, obviously. Uh, that would be some uh, negative results of not being able to merge the two entities. So if a Turkish sponsor considering to uh, invest in a non-resident entity and uh, collect funds from the market for this, then I think that sponsor will need to look into the suitable uh, listing venues, uh, including your jurisdictions, Uh, and unfortunately not Turkey. All right. Uh, Speaking of SPACs, uh, Adam, now that you, you opened this topic, Uh, How long does a SPAC take? Is it a cumbersome process too? Um, So it's a meaningful process. It's a very meaningful process.
2: Maybe worth breaking it into two two timeframes. What are we saying in terms of how long does it take for a SPAC post IPO to get to an announcement of a business combination? And then how long does it take to get from announcement to actual close? So that first period on average, and these are US numbers rather than European because there's just not been enough uh, data generated on this side of the Atlantic. But in the US, the average time from IPO to announcement of a business combination. So basically you've signed the agreement um, is 15 months. So we're looking now, at business combinations uh, for deals that on average, you know, were early you know, Q1 of 2020 are getting to their business combinations now. Um, we just closed one that was was after that, but on average, that's the sort of time frame. And then from the time that you sign the agreement, you know, you've you've come to you've come to heads of terms, you're ready to announce something to uh, the market and to your shareholders to vote on um, the average time from you know that negotiated m and deal to closing of the transaction with the with the consequent relisting uh, is is another four months on average. There there's some that are a bit shorter, uh, some that are a bit longer, but you know, broadly speaking, that's the sort of time frame. Uh, Time frame you're looking at within that first 15 months, you know a good part of that time is the negotiation around the deal, um, and then you're sort of in the world of just selling it to uh, the existing uh, the existing shareholders.
1: Thank you, Adam. Just one more question about SPAC, and that that's a question to Rebecca this time. Uh, what do you think the uh, target owners can do to get their uh, business ready for a SPAC?
0: Yeah, I think it is a good question because people tend to focus on the SPACs, on the sponsors, but there's business in it for uh, target companies as well. And you'll see in the Netherlands, you have a lot of companies profiting from the the fact that there are a lot of SPACs emerging and they're looking for a business combination. So what you'll see is that you have a lot of companies that are uh, efficient in guiding target companies in the diligence processes, because if you are considering to sell your company and perhaps you have seen hey, you're, that's the first item. If you're considering to sell or be open to the idea to be, to be acquired, make sure that you're informed of what the spots are that are going on and whether those spots have your business focus. Make sure that if you are open, and that would in any case be in an M&A transaction as well, if you're open to that, make sure that you have your 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 administration everything in order so be sure that you're able to commence the due diligence straight away and that's you have a lot of due diligence providers for in the Netherlands that will be able to help you in organizing your your administration, your corporate documentation, etc. Obviously you can be part of a you will be part of a listed company, which will mean that you'll need to have your your, your financial controls, your internal controls also in place. So that's something that you will need to start to be preparing on what it will be um, if you were, were to be listed. And furthermore, the management board needs to be ready. It needs to be ready and and, um, and, and and be able to sell the company as best as possible.
1: Very good tips. I think they are uh, equally valid for the Turkish targets that, that are looking forward to PE investments, financial investors. Uh, which are uh, not around in Turkey for the last couple of years due to the economical and yeah. political situation. Uh, but uh, you have to be prepared because uh, once you have the shot, you have the shot uh, and you don't have the time to, to prepare uh, then. So you have to be prepared uh, if you're considering to to, to sell your company uh, to a SPAC or a, to another financial investor uh, in the short or midterm. Uh, so very good tips uh, thanks for, the, for for them uh, Rebecca
2: now I would add to, I'd add to that just one or two things I agree with everything that's been said I, I think if you can clean up skeletons in the closet that's that's better so if there's a bit of old litigation that you could just settle and move on with your life uh, you know one thing you know one less thing to have to talk to a buyer about, one less thing to have to have disclosed in a shareholder circular. Yeah, you know, I think that's I think that's better. I, agree. Um, <laughs> I think the other, and this this is, you know, the, the question around financial statements, you know, all, you know, all three of us have had deals delayed by financial statement issues in the IPO context. The exact same thing is true in the context of of a re in a in a in a D you know, having your head around uh, your financials, ideally having IFRS financials. And if you're at all interested in closing with a US back, having IFRS financials uh, prepared with, with the PCAOB uh, in mind will make that process a whole lot easier. The US is, is super focused on IFRS as promulgated by the IASB. You know, so having having the groundwork laid for that makes you a much better target. You know, somebody who you know wants to buy your company, wants to in effect list your company in the United States, if if they're saying that this is going to take months of delay uh, because you don't have your financial statements in order, that's gonna have a, a either a is either going to kill the deal or it's gonna have an impact on uh, on on pricing, so keep
1: that in mind. Thank you for these comments, Adam. Uh, I've been checking my uh, list for the questions I have for you. It looks like there is only one, uh, which is a concluding question, and uh, I would be happy if you both can answer that uh, because at the end, it's a matter of personal experience and view uh, about uh, SPACs. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of a, a SPAC IPO compared to a conventional IPO?
0: Talking and thinking uh, at the same time, the advantages compared to a to an initial IPO. I think it, those are things are difficult to 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 compare, depending on whether perhaps you're invest. Um, perhaps if I take it from the investor's perspective, what I what I be investing in a, a SPAC IPO or in a um, in a more eh, normal IPO, I think that, that's a difficult question. I think there, um, there are two different things. I think the main consideration would be, perhaps I can formulate it like this, is ultimately an investor in SPAC will be putting in his his money, so 10 euros per unit, and it will be have to wait, and that that, that money would not really add the liquidity, and the, the share price change would not change that much during, until the business combination has been completed. So there will be a waiting period. And currently for Euro accounts, you'll have the negative interest rate as well. So the proceeds will be placed on a a trust account with um, a negative interest account. But ultimately, the benefit of it all would be if there would be a successful IPO and the share price would increase, which results in the profit afterwards. So it's a a difficult situation for me to really compare what, what the benefits would be to compare a normal IPO to a, um, to a SPOC IPO. With respect to disadvantages or risks, there, there, there are certain risks um, involved in this, and this would be the case that if there is no business combination. So that's, that, then you would have waited for your, hey, you have, you, you have invested your money and ultimately it will result in you getting your money per rata back from what is available on the fund. If we look at the Netherlands, there has been one example, um, and that was the first uh, SPOC we had in the Netherlands. And they had, a, um, they had a target focus and they were so confident that they will be able to reach the business combination deadline. Uh, but ultimately they didn't, weren't able to fi- find a business acquisition and business combination within the deadline and requested for an extension. And really ultimately within that timeline, they had managed to acquire a company, that's called cm.com, uh, which is currently listed on Euronext Amsterdam, but it was really tricky So it is really important, that's why I always focus, please consider and make sure that in your preparation, you already have in mind what your target focus will be. Don't start only once you're listed because that will take a lot of time in in this process.
2: So I'm going to add one thing to what Rebecca just said, and then I'm going to take a different uh, perspective uh, and focus on the advantages and disadvantages for targets but I completely agree with what what Rebecca just said. One thing to keep in mind for everybody involved in these transactions to keep in mind, and we try and stay away from the phrase blank check, but it is, and it's super important that uh, if you're considering doing, you know, listing a SPAC that you not start to have substantive discussions with targets uh, in advance of, honestly, in advance of closing of the IPO of the SPAC. And conversely, if you're a business uh, that wishes to be a target, not to have substantive disclosure discussions with, with SPACs until they have closed. Because if you go fa- too far down that path and start to have those substantive dis- discussions, then you'll need to disclose those. And rather than doing a deal for a SPAC, you're doing a deal for your your company and that, that just becomes a nightmare. Regulators will ask this fact during the IPO process, have you had substantive discussions with targets? And you wanna be able to, to, to say no. Um, that, that is an easy, easy way to screw it up for everybody. But maybe well, looking at it in the context of targets. If I were a target, what would be the things that I would weigh up in terms of should I IPO or should I take, you know, should I take an offer from one of the 500 spacs that are out there looking for somebody like me? You trade IPO execution risk for m and deal certainty. IPOs fail. I wish they didn't. Um, everybody on this panel has been involved in uh, in failed deals. We have great companies, terrific uh, management great investment thesis, uh, but when you go to close your IPO, the market, it just isn't there for, for one reason or another. SPACs, on the other hand, have the money. They've gone through the process. They're sitting on the cash. Uh, they have a straightforward mechanism to get more cash. Uh, so if the M&A works, then virtually all of the transactions go through. Less than 5% of announced business combinations don't complete. So you're able to trade the risk of an IPO as a target um, for for deal certainty. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, You also get valuation certainty. So once you've inked your business combination agreement with with the SPAC, you know what your company is, uh, is worth. Um, you you aren't ever sure of that in the IPO context until you sign the underwriting agreement at the end of the book build process, um, and it, it depends on whether there's a market there that wants to value you and uh, the way you and your investment banks want to uh, to value. So there's a risk. So I love IPOs. Let's be super clear. I make my living off of IPOs, but there's a there are real advantages to uh, the valuation certainty that comes from uh, having a negotiated uh, M and A deal on the uh, uh, on the bot. There can be partial exits target shareholders um, with less backlash than in an IPO. So in an IPO, oftentimes there's it sort of feels awkward if they're selling shareholders. There's not that same issue in the context of. Uh, of a SPAC uh, target uh, target deal, I will say this though, and we should take, you know, we should be very careful about uh, about this. There had been a sense that a de-SPAC was sort of a cheap IPO. It is not. It it is a difficult, complex process to go through a a DSPAC, and fees associated with it, the time an effort that's associated from management in the context of a D-SPAC um, is, is at least comparable to the time and effort uh, associated with, uh, uh, with an IPO. And there was also previously, particularly in the United States, a sense that you could get higher valuations on a D-SPAC than you could in an IPO because you were freer to give forward-looking information. One of the problems with deals more generally, of course, is investors wanna know what's gonna happen in the future rather than what's happened in the past. There was up until relatively recently, a more robust view of what could be said to the market around guidance around forecasts in the SPAC context compared to the IPO context. The SEC, uh, really poured water on that idea uh, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, that sort of time frame, um, making it super clear that, uh, that they think that people were inappropriately taking advantage of some of the, the, the guidance that had previously been given around forward-looking statements, and that the SEC was not going to continue to allow that to, uh, uh, to continue. Now, that, that statement came out at about the same time as some some issues around the U.S. gap treatment of founder warrants, and so it's a little difficult to tell uh, exactly how much of the current U.S. slowdown is driven by the agitation caused by the SEC statements versus uh, the very real U.S. gap implications uh, for. Accounting treatment of, of, of founder warrants, but it is definitely there. And so, you know, people should not go into a, a D-spac process thinking this is just a simple sell-side and um, and I can take my money and run. Because that's definitely not the uh, uh, not the way these these deals run. But they are successfully getting done. Huge deals, very 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 big deals, are getting done in the D-spac uh, market cross-border transactions with, uh, with great outcomes for everybody. Uh, so, uh, and you know, as mentioned earlier, just a ton of cash waiting to be spent on targets. So it's a very real opportunity for, for lots of people. I'm going to shut up there. Sorry, I hmm. monologue just for a second, moving, but it, I get really well, excited about the product. <laughs>
1: well, thanks, Adam. That's great insight uh, actually for all of us. Uh, I have received a question on my phone from one of the attendees, actually, and uh, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, what are the potential instruments that the funds at escrow could be invested in until the business combination, considering negative interest rates for risk-free assets, in ways to avoid negative carry? Uh, let me start with the Turkish angle. Turkish law says the free cash can be uh, used as bank deposit uh, or invested in Turkish treasury bonds uh, or other similar investment instruments to the extent cash management policy has been disclosed in the offering documents and the use of cash is in line with that policy actually. So there is to a certain extent flexibility for the spec entity to make use of the cash in the interim. How is it from your jurisdiction's perspective, especially considering the negative interest issue, how this spec will be making use of the cash that it will be collecting from the investors?
0: I think we had some interesting discussions on this uh, this topic indeed. One of the things that makes it more difficult, I think there are various aspects, and correct me if I'm wrong, also US law aspects which will come into play as to whether you, let, let us put it, it would in essence be possible, but there are certain restrictions um, to be looked at from various perspectives uh, and governing laws as to whether it, it's feasible um, and beneficial to construct the, uh, the option to have the cash used uh, for for other purposes of transactions as well in the meantime.
2: Yep. They, so I think I think it comes down to a couple of very specific points. A lot is driven by currency, particularly in the Maya, where the default would normally be euro and we're living in a negative interest rate world. The current pricing, SPAC escrows, not to upset, I don't know who all's on the line, but uh, I'm sure there will be some uh, escrow provider on the line. But uh, you know, think, think along the you know, in the realm of 50 to 75 basis points negative. And then it's a question of who bears that risk. You know, do the sponsors have to put up enough money to cover that? Or does that sit with, uh, with shareholders? If you're doing a, a deal in, in, in Euro, to pick, uh, to pick an example. Uh, if you're in dollars, you are basically sitting flat. Possibly, uh, you'll earn a basis point or two. Probably not. It'll just be it'll just be flat. So you've got cash sitting there doing nothing, at best, or or paying a penalty at uh, at worst. So Rebecca mentioned the eighth question earlier, and from a European perspective, you you just can't be in the business. Of giving money to a spec who's going to be out there gambling it in the marketplace roulette and hoping that that your treasurer does you know does something good with the cash that doesn't work from a European regulatory perspective and in a very similar way it doesn't work from a U.S. perspective. There are very very specific money market funds that a U.S. spec in dollars is able to buy. Um, but they don't particularly work on this side of the world. So you're living with with, dead carry, at the least, maybe negative carry, um, depending on currency. But if you're a euro holder, you're paying that penalty, whether you've got it sitting in a SPAC or sitting in a bank account anyway, so you can make a commercial argument one way or another. it. The other important piece, and here's the trade-off, right? So you get a free... How many free bets do most investors get? Right. So <laughs> you hand over that ten euros, and uh, obviously there's there's an opportunity cost associated with handing over that ten euros. But if you don't like the deal, you get your money back. Like there's not a whole lot of uh, of deals out there that give you, you know, your money back. Um, and for most deals, not all deals, but most deals, you get to keep. You get a warrant, and that, the warrant is out of the money to begin with, but, uh, you know, there, there's a pretty widespread, usually between 11 and a half euros uh, and 18, where you can exercise that, uh, that warrant at 11 and a half. So you've got, you've got a lot of free upside in exchange for the dead carry or negative carry through that period. I think that's part of why this product is, is so popular. Um, that the trade-off for for sitting on that not being able to invest in other things is uh, the free bet
1: and an award all right well thank you adam thank you rebecca uh, i really enjoyed the chat uh, as a turkish lawyer uh, who, who knows almost nothing about specs other than the very limited pieces of turkish law uh, without any experience on the ground so I really enjoyed uh, the discussion and uh, I learned a lot. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, that, that, that's that been very helpful and a useful discussion. In the meantime, obviously, our sponsors can consider international markets like London, like uh, Amsterdam or uh, elsewhere. And uh, obviously, as Baker McKenzie and as Senator an partnership, uh, our team would be very happy to take you to those jurisdictions to discuss the particularities of those jurisdictions. And to help you uh, making in your investment decisions and structuring your transactions.